people were using ESG metrics from corporations as a way to say, hurrah, you are a good company. But what they were really measuring was whether those ESG metrics were going to have an impact on the company's profits rather than whether the company was doing good in the world. Welcome to The Net Zero Life, a podcast for climate-conscious individuals looking to learn the ideas, lessons, and philosophies driving today's climate leaders. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Akshat Rati, senior reporter for climate at Bloomberg News, on how he uses his role at Bloomberg Green to identify real solutions to the global problem of climate change. Climate change is a relatively new science. The impacts of that scientific research can have massive consequences on how governments, companies, and even individuals think about their role in preventing climate change. Yet distilling that scientific knowledge requires a pair of skills few people have. First, the ability to comprehend the science, and second, the skills to distill it in an understandable level for a non-expert. Akshat has made it his mission to do just that. Through his weekly newsletter and podcasts, Akshat covers physical and human solutions to the challenge of a global net-zero transition. He's careful to cover the companies and people who are making a real impact. I've subscribed and unsubscribed to many climate podcasts and newsletters, and Akshat's is one that I continuously read and come back to. During the episode, we discuss Akshat's unique pivot from a PhD in organic chemistry to journalism, his keys to writing accurate and accessible climate coverage, and how he measures the impact of his work on his readers and listeners. Akshat earned his PhD from the University of Oxford, and before that, a BTech in chemical engineering from the Institute of Chemical Technology in Mumbai. He writes a weekly newsletter at Bloomberg called Zero, publishes a weekly podcast by the same name, and is an active participant on Climate Twitter and LinkedIn. Prior to joining Bloomberg, Akshat was a senior reporter at Quartz and a science editor at The Conversation. He's also worked for The Economist and the Royal Society of Chemistry. His writings have been published in Nature, The Hindu, The Guardian, Arts Technica, and Chemistry World, among others. Akshat and I have had the pleasure to meet in person. We've bounced ideas off of each other both on and off mic. He's committed to building climate communities, and I'm excited to invite him into our Net Zero Life community today. Akshat, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, I hope we cover some topics that you haven't talked about previously. I know for my audience, uh, it's very exciting. I reference your work in other episodes that we've done, and so we're excited to peel it back. Oh, that's very kind. I thought that we could begin with The Spirit, um, the student magazine from your time at undergrad. Um, hopefully that's a topic you haven't covered previously. And then, you know, peeling that in, telling us about The Spirit and then your decision to attend Oxford um, around 2008. So I, as an engineering student in Mumbai, uh, I met a journalist uh, who was an engineer in the past and he was keen to um, help students uh, in colleges figure out how to um, get some of their writing chops uh, in and so he suggested that you know the college doesn't have a magazine why don't you guys launch a magazine and I can show you what roughly a magazine would look like and and uh, you can take it from there so one evening over beers we just sat down on a computer and he walked us through all the softwares that are needed uh, what do you need to produce what would be the rough structure and he's like go do it and show it to me and then we can improve it from there and so um, I used to blog as uh, just a hobby and for fun and so it was a natural extension for me to try and then use that and turn it into print uh, which is what the magazine was it was an actual print product we needed money for it because it was a student magazine and there is um, always money that you need to get from the university or from sponsors and we were very fortunate to get a sponsor from the very first issue and uh, that became my project for the rest of my time in uh, undergrad. Yeah, and let me set the stage um, a little bit as well. So this is 2004, 2008 era while you're an undergraduate in, ke- in a chemical engineering degree, but in, in your spare time, spending time blogging. Um, from the blogging perspective, did you? when did you start that? Was that high school? Was that um, engineering school? And, and what platform did you use? And what did you talk about? Yeah, blogging started in engineering school, um, and it was all kinds of things. It was like gossipy, um, it was just random philosophical thoughts, and the 
platform we used uh, was Blogspot. This was the Google platform. Um, I think it's still around. Uh, it wasn't WordPress. Uh, Blogspot was just much easier to use than WordPress at the time. And um, I don't know. I mean, we looked at stats and stuff, but like it really didn't matter. It was just about being able to find a way to express myself. Do you ever go back and read any of the material you wrote? I have. I am obviously as somebody who's now a writer for a professional job, it's embarrassing. So I've made a lot of my posts from that time private. But there are some pieces that I still think like, wow, I wrote it, you know, when I was not even 20 years old. And I feel like, you know, that's cool. Yeah, 100%. I feel like reading your own writing is similar to hearing your own voice. You're like, especially after like some time between writing it, right? When you write it in the moment, you're like, that was the greatest thing ever. When you're singing in the shower, it's the same thing. And then you go back and actually listen to yourself or read your own material. And you're like, oh my gosh, couldn't believe I wrote that. Cool. So you've, you've already started thinking about writing before, um, before turning it into career. You're doing an undergraduate degree in engineering. 2008, the world is in a great recession. You decide to attend Oxford to continue the uh, to continue the STEM. You go for a PhD in organic chemistry, and um, from there you end up going from to the to the Economist as well. So walk us through a little bit of your mindset. Why go pursue a PhD? How do you end up? Um, and I know you get this question a lot, so I'm actually going to put a different spin on it. Tell me a little bit about why you go to get the PhD, and then when you decide to forego industry or academia into writing, who were your influences at the time? Were there specific articles you were reading or people you were talking to that influenced you to, to leave that path behind, the more traditional path, and pursue um, a new avenue? So as an undergrad, it was all, everything was new to me. I mean, it was the first time I'd left home, uh, first time I'd been able to stay away from my parents for that long, uh, first time I was trying to think and figure out what exactly I wanted in life rather than what my parents wanted. And... Um, the Institute of Chemical Technology, where I did my undergrad, is a place where lots and lots of students uh, went in for higher degrees, mostly a PhD, actually. And um, that was something uh, everybody looked up to because they ended up in like the top places around the world, Berkeley, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge. And it was just as a kid, never occurred to me that that's something I could be doing. Um, and so finding those kinds of mentors was the reason why I thought, okay, Actually, there is a subject I like, and I could be going and studying it at the world's best university and exploring it in ways that I have never explored a subject. So the PhD, that's why the PhD felt attractive. I was a chemical engineering student, so the reason I was there was because I like chemistry and maths. But it turned out like maths in engineering is really just statistics. Um, and it can be creative, but it's not as fun as... Uh, trigonometry or um, calculus, uh, you know, the stuff that we did before getting into engineering. And so chemistry was still my core love, and that's why I chose to do a PhD. Um, and I was fortunate to get into Oxford. Did the Great Recession affect your decision at all? And then were were you working backwards from a specific goal? You know, some people go and pursue a PhD because they want to achieve, a, there's a secondary milestone. For you, it sounds like it was more um, of an academic pursuit, but um, let me know if that's not correct. So the journey to a PhD starts a couple of years earlier. Um, so I started thinking about it in 2006, which is like halfway through my engineering degree. And um, I started figuring out which universities I wanted to go to. And I applied to like 20 odd universities, got into 11 of them. Um, only one of those universities was in the UK, and that was Oxford. Um, and so I'd made the decision to go there uh, before the recession hit. It's only when I got there that the recession had begun. As it happened, the recession didn't really hit India that much. India was um, India was a fast-growing economy and probably slowed down a little bit, but it didn't actually go into a recession. Uh, but it was uh, a good thing for a student to get into university at that time because we thought, phew, we don't have to think about jobs and uh, we can focus on just studying. So 2012, you finished your PhD and you elect to pursue journalism. Presumably, the uh, from a financial perspective, it's more attractive to go into either industry, academia maybe less so, but industry most likely, right? You can go work for one of those big chemical companies. Um, what If that's correct, you're going against the grain and pursuing your love um, for writing, which you've been doing since undergraduate. Were there any um, methodologies you used that, to help you make that decision? Again, assuming that you were going against the green in the first place. Certainly. I got into doing a PhD because I wanted to become an academic. 
I love the subject and I wanted to keep exploring it in new different ways. There's just a joy as a PhD student where you are on the edge of knowledge that all of humanity has ever known and you're going to find and discover something new and that is a thrill that is unlike any other thrill. But what I saw with professors was that there was a period between your PhD and getting a professorship which was extremely long, getting longer and not as fun. And so I couldn't see myself uh, doing that, you know, waiting five or 10 years before I could get to a professorship. That's when I thought, okay, what else can I do? And, you know, and yeah, as somebody in his early 20s, like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually ended up going to the career service at Oxford and just being like, guys, I have certain skills and I'd love to be able to find ways to use those skills to actually get a job. After some conversations, I came up with three options. One was to go into consultancy. One was to go into management consultancy. Another one was to become a patent lawyer. And the third one was to do writing. Actually, the career person never suggested writing. That was just a thing that I knew I wanted to try. So I walked away with three options and I dropped management consultancy right away because it just didn't feel right. I uh, knew some people who'd done it and I was like, that's not for me. Um, I actually did apply for patent law and I did get a few and I did get a few interviews, but when I went and I did the interviews, the people were so stuffy. Uh, that I felt like, no, this is not the place where I'd want to go in day in and day out and do the work. And writing was something I used to do as a hobby in college, and then I continued to do that at Oxford. So the most sensible route for me was to try and get an internship at a publication. And uh, fortunately, I was able to get an internship at The Economist. So as you're going through this, were you like looking at any other um, pre-existing scientific writers? Uh, Atul Gawande is one of my favorite. Uh, there, someone describes him as not only a fantastic surgeon, but also a great author. It's like, leave some skills for the rest of us as well. And so were there people that you were emulating, Richard Feynman, Atul Gawande are, are two that come to mind for me. Um, but as you're thinking about these potential careers, again, um, management consulting, patent lawyers, kind of like more high-flying, writing... There are fantastic writers uh, who have large impacts, but they're probably not financially compensated in the way that they should be, especially compared to management consultants who charge thousands of dollars an hour. So I certainly had people to look up to. Uh, the UK actually has a thriving scene for science journalism and a number of people who've done uh, higher degrees and even PhDs have gone on to become science journalists. And I read their writing and you know, Twitter was a thing by that time. Blogging was a pretty thriving uh, thing. There were all these science uh, blogs, which were uh, multiple writers writing under one blog. And so uh, many of those were actually either industry executives um, who were actively working in a lab and still writing uh, a blog on the side, uh, or there were people who would become freelance writers after their PhD and just being a full-time journalist. So I knew those people on the internet. I read them. Uh, but I would say that it's different to know somebody on the internet and to know somebody in real life. And so the person who I knew in real life who was a journalist wasn't a science journalist, but was a long-time journalist, was the head of my college in Oxford. Uh, her name is Fa her name is Frances Cross, and uh, she'd been a journalist for 25, 30 years of her life um, and was now doing something completely different. But she made the time to look over my writing and give me the confidence that this is not just an internet hobby, but it could be a job. And uh, that was uh, really crucial for me to be able to then feel confident enough to apply for all these internships and, and get one. Yeah, and um, I definitely want to explore those tools and techniques that she taught you. Um, and I think a great way to do that is talk about first principles. So let's segue to first principles, um, specifically first principles of scientific writing um, for climate change and journalism. But you know, so much of what you do is identifying real solutions to this massive global problem, i.e. climate change, and you do it via your writing. And so um, I thought an area that we could start is like measuring impact of, of success and as success determined by by you. And so how do you, when, when you're writing a piece, how do you determine if it's successful? Um, what are the principles and tools that you're doing before writing that you're working backwards from thinking this is going to be an impactful, uh, an impactful piece of writing? So writing can be many things for many people. It's just a medium through which you get your thoughts across to one other person or to millions of other people. And so it's very hard uh, to have one metric that would allow you to compare 
what writing means across all these um, different forms in which you could use it. So personally, I would look at it based on the type of story that I'm trying to write. So I have a weekly newsletter and I like the newsletter to be quite conversational. I like it to be making uh, an argument that is backed up by sources and interviews and facts and charts. Uh, I like it to be able to do something that uh, is hard to do in a daily news flow where connect the dots show where the world may be heading so i would judge my newsletters on that basis then there's feature writing which requires much longer lead times because you're reporting you're perhaps visiting a place you're talking to many many people for it and that i would judge on its ability to be able to reveal something new to the world, uh, to be able to show the same subject but in a new light, to be able to give an insight or an investigation into something that people think they know, but you have given them a completely new way of thinking about it. Um, and so those are two major things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. But the real joy of writing is when readers get in touch. And readers get in touch through newsletters. Uh, they get in touch via Twitter. They get in touch via email. And uh, they may read stories that you've published that week, or they may read stories you've published years ago. And that is just a joy which, you know, is not predictable, but it's, um, it's what I live for. I think many writers live for. Can you tell us about a time where a reader reached out uh, and it left a mark on you or you remember that reader's response particularly or it helped you think about the world in a little bit different uh, and in a little bit different manner? Yeah, I've had multiple readers who've reached out and said, you know, I've been reading your writing for some years and now I've decided to switch jobs and work on climate issues doing X or Y or Z. The first time it happened, I was shocked. I was like, I didn't kind of expect that to be the thing I was expecting to give people insight, but not to like change the direction of their life. Uh, and of course, it wasn't just my writing. Uh, you know, climate journalism in general is growing and awareness of the topic is growing. So it's, it's all of that coming together. But the fact that somebody reaches out to you and says, you were one of the influences for me to make this big decision in life, that is immensely satisfying. 100%. And so in terms of measuring success of the stories, one of the pieces that you uh, have written and won an award for, the Wincott Award, you and, you and a team won, um, won a prize in journalism for the work you did on ESG metrics. And so um, I'm curious how you think about measuring ESG impact, ESG being environmental, social and governance, but specifically from a climate perspective. So you're a climate writer, um, you focus on climate and you focus on global um, global solutions. For those who don't know, when we'll talk about it, I, I will talk about it in the intro um, before this, uh, before the recording, is you write the net, zero new, the net zero newsletter for Bloomberg Green, which we love all our children equally. And we had Nat Bullard on the show previously. So I have to be like, you know, maybe say this a little bit, little bit quietly, but it's one of the ones I look forward to the most. And, and so going back to this measuring success and also measuring success from a climate perspective, can you tell us a little bit about um, the piece you did that won an award, how you think about measuring impacts in climate uh, more generally, measuring how you measure is our, our, our theme for season four um, for the Net Zero Life podcast. And so it's a perfect segue into uh, both the first principles of your work and also how your work is bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Sometimes there's a story right in front of your eyes and you don't know it because you can't see it uh, with all the dots that are in front of you. An ESG Mirage story, which won the Wincott Award, is one of those stories. Um, ESG as an industry had been building up since the 80s. Um, it really took off in the late 90s, early 2000s. And what that industry does is it tries to take non-financial metrics uh, of corporations and puts a value on whether those non-financial metrics are going to affect the future of that company in some financial way uh, for large investors. So a financial metric would be profits. Um, a non-financial metric would be emissions. Uh, now, apparently there's no connection between the two if you, if you don't uh, think about it. Uh, but there is a connection between the two because a company that is emitting in a world that needs to cut emissions will be a company that is going against the grain. It may have social reputational problems, or if it continues to emit for so long that 
the world warms up, it may have direct impacts on its own business uh, through climate impacts, whether that's uh, sea level rise affecting their assets uh, or wildfires that stop them from selling whatever they are selling. So there is actually a connection, and that's what ESG metrics were trying to do. They were trying to take these non-financial metrics and trying to show to financial investors that it's important you take these into consideration. A really good goal. The trouble is, when you try and optimize for some outcome, you can easily end up abusing that system. So that's what this story revealed. It revealed that while it seemed like people were using ESG metrics from corporations as a way to say, hurrah, you are a good company because your ESG metrics are going in the right direction. But what they were really measuring was whether those ESG metrics were going to have an impact on the company's profits rather than whether the company was doing good in the world. So there was marketing around the ESG metrics, which was about you are a good company, but the reality was you are a good profit-making company. Again, part of the season, or the, the underlying theme of season four is this, how do you how do you measure? And, and you, you called it out, um, like a good company versus a bad company and impact, and, and specifically working backwards from impact to climate change and preventing the worst of the climate crisis. And so how do you, uh, you you've written about it in your writing. Um, I think that you have, um, a, you know, considering the, the statistics of, of well-formed opinions, you are on the far right side of the, the normal curve. Um, and so as you think about ESG metrics or carbon accounting or disclosures, um, or this the general data around sustainability, how do you think that that drives impact and are there specific data metrics that you like versus ones that you don't and tying it into SEC, upcoming SEC regulation or EU regulation and driving true foundational impact to help us achieve net zero? So non-financial metrics can be useful, but you need to know as an investor, what is it that you're going to use that metric for? Using one metric is probably not going to work. You want to use a set of metrics and you want them to make sense as you uh, use them. So for me, I would look at a company and I would look at absolute emissions. How much did they emit last year? How much did they emit this year? What is their target uh, over the next few years for absolute emissions reduction? I would also look at especially the large emitters at the carbon intensity metric alongside, which is a metric where you take emissions and you divide that by either um, production. So if uh, it's an oil company, how many barrels of oil did you produce? Or you can take revenue, which is how much money did you make that year? And so a carbon intensity metric is useful because with most large companies, they are, you know, buying other companies or selling certain companies, and that can have a direct impact on their absolute emissions. So if you sell a company, your emissions will suddenly decline. You may look good, but really your carbon intensity has gone up because what you sold was actually the green part of your company. Uh, and now you're left with a carbon-heavy part of the company. Or the reverse could happen, uh, where you buy a company and your emissions go up, but actually your carbon intensity falls because you've just bought a renewable energy company. And so it's important to look at both those metrics if you want to really understand the future of emissions uh, for that company. Going back to first principles, if you can peel back the curtain a little bit, tell us about how you're, or tell me, um, yeah, we'll talk about like audience um, perception here too, I think, which is interesting. But how do you think about telling a story from a climate perspective um, with a science background? And um, maybe, if you, like the, again, like the tools or the principles you use when you're crafting a story, like what does it look like on day one, scratch pad, um, iPhone note, what does it look like on day seven, um, if you have seven days? And, and if you don't have seven days, like tell us about what a compressed timeline is versus like a longer timeline? I think all of us will have had the experience where we walked into a forest and we hear some birds and we uh, maybe see an animal or two. Uh, we'll see the trees around us. And depending on which region of the world you are in, you would know perhaps one or two tree species. You would know a few bird species. You would know uh, the animals in that area. Um, you may know their calls. You may know how they sound. And all of that is something that we appreciate just naturally because that is something we've been taught to appreciate. People around us appreciate, and so we're naturally attuned to appreciating nature around us. We don't tend to do that with technologies. 
we don't tend to think about the cement that makes our homes, uh, the car that we drive, uh, or the engine on which it works. Uh, we try. We tend to take some of our everyday things for granted, and as a science journalist starting to do climate work, that I feel like is one aspect that I can help people appreciate. When you think about how something works and you know how something works, you develop a greater appreciation for that uh, technology, for that device. Um, or for that application that's probably going to help us tackle climate change. Um, you know, most people don't, for example, know that their electricity is coming from coal or gas and how a power plant that uses coal or gas actually looks and what processes are required between somebody burning coal and gas for you and for you to be able to get the electricity when you turn on the light at home. Um, and so it's a way for me as a science journalist uh, writing about climate change uh, to try and bring the science of everyday things into the stories that I tell because I think that will help people look at the future in a new light and uh, be more engaged with what we want the world to be. Are there specific actions that you hope people walk away with from each weekly column that you wrote or a special investigation or a feature? Or is it a more general um, mindset shift that you hope they come through after following you after a month, six months, two years? I think I kind of answered that question previously, which is like, you know, what what's the measure for my success, uh, for this, the way I think of uh, story success? Maybe I'll answer the second part of your previous question, which was, what does a story look like? Like, how does it come together? Yeah. So one way to think about how I come up with stories is just to pick up a story. Um, I wrote recently about uh, what happens to the world now that the U.S. and China have stopped talking to each other uh, on climate. And they are the two largest economies, the two largest emitters. That event happened on a Friday. And immediately we thought this is a big deal because of that status of those two powers. And we wanted to find out more, but we got nothing from the Chinese side apart from this declaration that because of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan, they're going to stop uh, talking to the U.S. for, um, they're going to stop talking to the U.S. on climate. But this is something that has been a sore point in the relationship that the two powers had had in the past. And so I spoke to uh, a few sources about what was it like in the past, what was the impact of these two powers talking to each other. And now that we are in this situation where the U.S. actually has a climate bill of its own, does it change anything? And having talked to many people, uh, to me, the story that made most sense was that we are entering a new period for climate diplomacy where rather than coordination between all the world's major powers, there's likely going to be more competition. And the more competition may not be such a bad thing because they're going to compete to be greener rather than compete to be burning more fossil fuels. Um, and that I thought was a healthy insight uh, into this sort of complicated story that's been running on for years and years. Uh, and so that's how the story came about and I was able to write it. Feature stories or longer investigations can happen anytime. I'm reading something, I have a mental model of how the world is, how this particular subject works, and then I spot a fact and I'm like, huh, that doesn't make sense. And then I start trying to figure out why that doesn't make sense. And I realize, oh my God, I'm pulling on the string and it, I just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and there are all these interesting facts that are coming through and there is a story here. Once we know there's a story here, then we start to try to make sense of what the story is, try to figure out who are the people that we should interview for it, how do we stitch it together so that it's interesting, uh, so that people really grasp the whole idea uh, in, a, in a digestible way and drive, drive home the impact that I had initially when I first looked at the story and I went, huh? Speaking of mental models, 
you have access to experts that many people don't have access to. You probably read more about climate than anyone else that you talk to on a regular basis. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you built your mental model for climate change and, and specifically what that mental model is. Like how do you how do you take this kind of big nebulous idea of climate change and then distill it into maybe even just smaller, slightly more digestible subcategories? But also how did you build that? What resources did you use? Who did you look after to talk to? Um, who did you go after to talk to? What Who did you read? Who did you watch? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. And, you know, I've been a journalist for 10 years now. So it's a very hard question because uh, there's a cumulative factor, like things build on top of each other. And so it's it'll be very hard to say there's been one source that's been the fountain of knowledge that I needed to be able to do this job because that's not possible. That's just the vastness of the subject that is climate change is um, that you need to talk to lots of people with lots of different expertise area. I would say one thing that definitely helps and helps distill my understanding of climate science is IPCC reports. This is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Every six or seven years, they'll put out these thousand-page reports. I don't read all the thousands of pages, but I, I have that as a reference that I'll go through the summary, and then I will go and dig into specific uh, details on what's happening to glaciers, what's happening to droughts. Um, and that helps me understand what are the forces that are shaping uh, the science. But that's the impacts part, that is the climate science part. This part that I spend most of my time on is solutions. And that's changing very rapidly. And that's mostly uh, not a science problem. It's a technology and a finance and a business problem. And that requires just conversations with people who are in the business doing that day in and day out. Um, and finding the experts who can think about nuclear fusion or who can think about hydrogen and really grasping where things are and how they're changing and then constantly doing that because um, everybody has a different view of how things are now and how they're going to be uh, going into the future. And when I talk to enough uh, experts across uh regions across uh, different backgrounds, then I'm able to create a mental model for that specific technology and where it fits. Climate change is this big ethereal idea, right? And for people, I, I think most people at this point are aware of it, um, but it's not necessarily digestible. So how do you make it more digestible to someone? I mean, maybe someone, I mean, maybe everyone is experiencing it. I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Uh, it would be very hard to be able to pick a story and try and tell the climate story, which is everywhere, all the time, and is playing out in different ways in a single story. So in a story, the way I prefer to be able to write a story is I'm going to try and tell somebody one thing, and I'm going to back it up with facts and insights from experts to help them really grasp that one thing. So one story I wrote earlier this year was how to avoid dodgy offsets. Now, people have heard about offsets. They know roughly that this is something that could do good in the world. But they may have come across an idea that, oh, this is not all that it's meant to be, that it's not going to do all the good that somebody's selling, that there's maybe greenwashing here. And so as a reader, if you come to a headline that says how to avoid dodgy offsets, you go, oh, there's something good and there's something dodgy about it. I'd love to know more. And then in that piece, I just walk through what are offsets, what are the big problems. If you're thinking of offsets, what what are the things you should think about? If you're go, uh, buying offsets, what offsets should you buy and what you should avoid? Um, and that is just a good way of uh, trying to distill one story in the climate world uh, but then do it so that somebody walking away from that story knows how to think about this subject, which is a subset of the big, big thing that is climate change. You have one of my, you, you, not one, you have my favorite quote about offset markets, um, and I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but it's a tweet, which is, um, it's a $100 billion thought experiment um, for a billion dollar um, market, which I think captures it so well. You know, offsets are so, I think, um, they're innate because people want to feel like they're a good person and it's like an easy solution to do it. And so many people spend so much time thinking about it. You mentioned global solutions earlier. Um, and so are, is there a specific financial solution that you think is is super impactful as we fight this battle to um, to get to net zero emissions and, you know, bring and maybe bring in offsets back to it? 
the financial solution that would do the most good is very simple, and that is finding ways to give developing countries the financial capacity to build green technologies. And that could happen in multiple ways. You could have development banks giving loans to developing countries to do the work. You could have BlackRock investing in a company in India that is doing green technologies. There's a whole variety of ways in which money can flow from developed countries to developing countries, not just as charity, but as an investment that will produce a return alongside cutting emissions. But it's just not being done at the scale that we need. There's a stunning fact, which is that today, rich countries are actually spending what they need to be spending to reach net zero by 2050. They may not be spending into the right ways or in the right places on the right technologies, but just the sheer amount of money being spent by rich countries, which includes China, by the way, is the right amount. And then if you look at developing countries, there's just a vast gap. So when you look at the world as a whole, you go, oh my God, we need to be spending $4 trillion a year and all we are spending is $2 trillion a year. Well, it turns out the $2 trillion we are not spending is all in developing countries. And so that would be the real financial solution to try and tackle climate change. If we go back to the awards that you've won, um, you, we mentioned the Wincott Award. You've also won awards for work um, with your piece describing ExxonMobil's emissions, which greatly impacted engine number one. We talked about that story um, on the podcast before, but for those who are unfamiliar, it's this tiny hedge fund winning three board seats on ExxonMobil, which is this massive major um, um oil and gas producer, energy producer. You also won awards um, previously in 2020 and 2018. How much of your success as a writer do you attribute to your, I'm going to call it non-traditional pathway, but you let me know if that's not correct. Perhaps there's like tons of PhDs in chemistry who end up becoming writers. But how much of that do you attribute that to your um, non-traditional pathway versus just your unique lens of telling a climate story? It's hard for me to judge really because I don't know what what a me without a background uh, in chemistry would be able to do uh, and where that person would be. Uh, You know, yes, it's kind of a non-traditional background. There are more and more people with PhDs coming and doing journalism, and that's wonderful because I think uh, the thing that journalism should be is a reflection of society, and it should reflect uh, both uh, racially and gender diversity, but also intellectual diversity of uh, people who have worked in industry, who've worked in academia, who have worked in the arts, uh, who've worked as uh, charity uh, in, in philanthropies, who've worked at uh, in government, who should come and uh, provide their uh, insight and their perspective uh, through a journalistic outfit. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm able to do that and that in the process of doing it, I've been able to make some impact. I mean, awards are just one way in which you can measure those impacts, but really it's the letters from readers, uh, it's the comments from uh, people on the internet who see the stuff that really makes a difference. I feel like they're, when most people are talking about comments on the internet, they're not necessarily talking about that from a glowing perspective, but it's nice to hear that there's some positivity <laughs> out there in the world too. Um, what does the future hold for you and your audience in terms of content, specifically climate content? So the big project I'm working on this year is to launch a podcast. It's called Zero. It's Bloomberg Green's uh, flagship podcast on climate issues. Uh, the main format is going to be a one-to-one interview with a guest who is influential uh, in shaping the climate future or has the power to be able to do it. And uh, we'll also be doing tons of reporting around uh, the world that we'll highlight through the podcast. Uh, I'm going to the U.S. for a three-week tour of different startups uh, and what climate tech startups have built in the last three years, because my last visit was in 2019, um, and we'll end up telling stories from there. Uh, But we also have uh, guests like Bill Gates uh, and George Monbiot, who's an environmental writer here in the U.K., We'll get Kim Stanley Robinson, the sci-fi author. Uh, we'll have Amitav Ghosh, who is uh, also a novelist, but uh, from India. Uh, we're going to get uh, the former environment minister of Canada. And so the guest list is starting to build up, and it's really exciting to um, put all that down. And, and, and the goal of the podcast is to investigate the tactics and technology that we are going to need to get to zero. And these guests uh, should be able to give us uh an insight into how we get there 
but uh, it's an ongoing conversation and I hope I can uh, make the podcast be a part of it. Yeah, not only that, I'm, I'm super excited um, in part because it's not just the guest, but I'm, I'm really excited to hear how you guide the guest. Um, you know, a huge fan of your writing, huge fan of your, your thinking and your mental frameworks and your philosophies. And so um, pairing that up with the guests uh, that you named, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, Bill Gates, um, I'm super, super pumped. And so everyone should go listen to it, um, obviously. The um, I'd love to chat a little bit about kind of just like more of these like quick fire questions, but take as long as you'd like. Um, you know, this is an easy one and a cop out. I'm sure you've gotten it before, but what is? Do you have a favorite piece that you've written of all time? And if so, can we link it in the show notes? Here's perhaps one that speaks to many of my different interests coming together into one story. So last year we had a story about a single shipment of liquefied natural gas going from Australia to China, uh, which was offset by traders sitting in Singapore and uh, using offsets uh, in China and Zimbabwe uh, to try and claim that that shipment was carbon neutral, which was a bogus claim to be made because uh, the offsets that they purchased weren't actually removing the emissions that would be put into the atmosphere through uh, the shipping and the burning of that liquefied natural gas. But it did this thing for me, which would be a highlight, which is it touched on the science, on uh, the business, on corporations, and uh, touched on seven different countries in which this transaction was taking place. Uh, and to be able to tell a global story in one piece, uh, which includes greenwashing and climate change and solutions, is just um, really fun to do. Do you have a favorite carbon removal or negative emissions technology? <laughs> I'll choose two. One is that I love technologies that actually turn carbon dioxide into a solid form and you know it's never going to escape. And that's what Carb Fix, which is uh, in Iceland, is doing. Uh, it takes it works with Climeworks, which is a startup in Switzerland, and then uh, injects the carbon dioxide that's captured from the air into basaltic rock, where once you put it in, uh, the carbon dioxide reacts with the rock uh, and over two years just becomes rock. And so uh, that's a really good uh, way of uh, making sure that it actually works, that that is then a real offset uh, or real carbon removed. Uh, then the other part of carbon removal is it's such an unexplored territory that every other month I come across a funky idea to do it. Uh, perhaps the most recent favorite one is this company called InterEarth in Australia uh, that is pickling carbon. And the way it does it is it uh, chops off tree branches, not the tree itself, so the tree can survive, uh, and then puts it in a salty um, lands which are essentially used to be agricultural lands but have become unusable and are uh, saltier than the sea is uh, and because you can put salt and water and uh, carbon together uh, and you pickle it ideally it should stay there and not be released back into the atmosphere which is what would happen to a dead tree um, but it's so very new so very simple uh, yet it's not being proven but I'm glad that there is a startup trying it and maybe it will work. And you, you wrote about this in one of your weekly newsletters, uh, which was a, a fantastic story. Um, and I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Um, sustainability superhero. When I say the word sustainability superhero, who comes to mind? I don't know if you're going to like this answer, but um, one of the reasons why I became a journalist was that I hate the idea of a hero. Like I have a, it's like, I think that, What's the best way to do it? I, I need to articulate this for myself as well, um, which is, is it the hero complex? I don't know what it is. But um, so someone coming to journalism from a non-traditional background, from a science background, one thing that I found shocking is that how easy it is to be able to write stories uh, that pin one person as the doer of a big thing, uh, when in reality that is Never the case. I'm not even saying almost never. It is never the case. And as a scientist, that was something we always knew. Yes, there were scientists who received Nobel Prizes. Yes, there were scientists who got lots of citations for science stories. But 
we always knew that their science is built on the shoulders of other science and other giants. And yes, there are some recognizable names in science, but you don't get a, a Bill Gates of science because you cannot have one. And that's true of every other aspect of life. Uh, but somehow, people like to talk about other people and people like to tell stories about one individual doing something heroic when that's never the case. It, yeah, I want to say you're a hero um, for many people, but um, I'll, I'll punt that. I'll make sure to cut it. Um, <laughs> what's what's one book, podcast, or other form of media that's greatly impacted the way you view uh, the world uh, from a climate perspective? You mentioned IPCC already, so I'm going to cut that answer out. So you have to give us something else. So a personal impact was a different United Nations report. It's called Livestock's Long Shadow, which I read when I was at Oxford. And um, I had no idea then that livestock's emissions uh, were higher than all of transport emissions in the world. All ships, planes, cars, trucks, everything. Uh, and it just, that one fact changed my mind. And I ended up, the, the only campaign I think I've ever run in life uh, is a meatless uh, Monday campaign, uh, which we successfully got our uh, college to be able to turn the uh, canteen to not have any uh, meat for uh, one day a week. So that was a personal impact. I would say on journalism or the way I think about uh, climate change, uh, the book or the lecture series called The Great Derangement by novelist Amitav Ghosh uh, would be a, a really uh, good one. You can listen to it on YouTube if you want to. It's available as a four-part uh, YouTube video, or you can buy his book, uh, which is essentially his uh, four-part speech uh, written in text. And it's beautiful and gorgeous, and it comes from a completely unusual place for me as a novelist uh, who is thinking about climate change and what its impact mean uh, for the people in developing countries, but how uh, the world around us has come to that point. So he's written only a few nonfiction books, and those nonfiction books are about climate change, uh, but he writes novels, and many of those novels feature climate. So you're going on this podcasting tour, um, and part, part, part of it is in the U.S., and your, your list of guests is incredible. How do you go about and find, for one, how do you identify the people that you want to speak to, and then how do you go and get access to them? I think it's uh, mostly stories. So some people, I would love for them to tell the stories. So Kath McKenna, who's the former Environment Minister of Canada, I just wanted to know the story of how uh, she got a carbon price in Canada, which is seen as toxic policy because wherever other countries have tried, they've typically failed. So I was trying to get that story and that person, Kat McKenna, was the best person to tell that story. Other times, it's the thinker. So Bill Gates is probably the only billionaire you should listen to on climate in a way because he has thought about the problem for a long time. He has spent uh, his own capital, but his own time trying to find solutions and invest in those solutions. Um, and he has a holistic approach to being able to tackle this problem, um, which is not to say you should listen to him as the expert on the topic, but among the billionaire class, I would say he has the most thoughtful approach. There are lots of other people who also should complement what Bill Gates does on innovation uh, for, for climate solutions. Uh, there's social innovation, there's political innovation that is needed to be able to get, get us to zero emissions. Um, but that was the reason to have Bill Gates on because he thinks about innovation in a way that is thorough and uh, can be investigated. Uh, and he is very up for having hard questions thrown at him. If he has such a great time on your podcast and wants to do more climate podcasts, let me know. I'm happy to have him on anytime. Um, I'm sure we can make room in the schedule. Yeah, I'm talking to him in three hours. I'll tell, I'll oh tell wow him. okay great yeah let him know <laughs> uh, hopefully be fresh hopefully you've had a great time so uh, what you do or don't have to say um awesome one two more questions for you um we we kind of touched on your background 2004 2008 undergrad 2008 to 2012 um graduate degree in chemistry and then we talked about that transition to writing but what about your transition from writing to from scientific writing to specifically climate focused writing what was the root cause there so I started as a science journalist and climate was 
unavoidable as a science journalist because uh, you had these regular reports coming from scientists warning us there's a problem. The difficulty for me was, at the time, I didn't want to cover climate because it was just a depressing story. I couldn't see that there was anything being done about it, and just trying to cover impacts just didn't feel like the mindset I could put myself in day in and day out. And then Donald Trump came on scene, which is an odd thing to say, but the reason is that uh, he was campaigning on something called clean coal in 2016, and my editor at the time turned around and he's like, what is he talking about? And I gave him song and verse about this technology called climate. I gave him song and verse about this technology called carbon capture and said, yeah, you know, I don't think Trump really understands it, but it's a real thing and you can actually use it. And he's like, wow, um, maybe you should write stories about it. And I ended up doing an year-long investigation uh, in carbon capture, looking at all the things that have been done in the past and what its future is going to be. And that gave me a lens which I thought was missing in climate journalism at the time, at least. Uh, This is going back to Trump's time where we looked at solutions and really investigated the solutions for what they can do and what it will take to be able to scale them uh, to do what they need to do for the world. Well, um, constraints breed resourcefulness. I don't know if I can call Donald Trump a constraint, but um, I'm super grateful that that, um, that affected your pathway in 2016. Your writing is fantastic. Your tweets are fantastic. Your podcast is going to be fantastic as well. Um, I know, you know, heroes might not be uh, your favorite concept, but um, from my lens, I'm super grateful that you spend your time thinking about climate and writing about climate. Uh, it's a pleasure to read it. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Akshat, thank you so much for coming. Well, that's very kind of you. These were fantastic questions and thank you for uh, having me on the on your podcast. Thanks again to Akshat for joining us today. You can connect with him on Twitter at Akshat Rathi, A-K-S-H-A-T-R-A-T-H-I and find all the ways to get in touch with him there in his Twitter bio. Sign up to the Bloomberg Green Newsletter to receive Akshat's weekly piece and listen to his podcast Zero wherever you listen to podcasts. Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. If you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion. It is in no way reflective of my employer, and it's also not investment advice. This episode was produced by Tony Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support our work, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify, and check out our socials at The Net Zero Life. Until next week, I'm Nathan Sweet, and this is The Net Zero Life. Life.